Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, Paul then writes, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing By the word of God. Remember why Paul has set aside chapters 9 and 10 and 11. Paul wants to address the spiritual condition of Israel. Their past. Their present. Their future. Paul's purpose in part is to explain how God could put aside his chosen people and still save a nation in the future. Paul has given us reasons for Israel's rejection in verses 1 through 13. And now he's going to address the remedy for Israel's rejection. It's very simple. Number one, messengers must be sent. Number two, they must declare the gospel. Number three, sinners have to hear the word. Number four, sinners have to believe the word. Number five, They call upon Christ. Number six, they are saved. We often speak from this passage about global evangelism. And certainly we can apply the passage to the subject of global evangelism. But I want to just take a moment, just a brief moment. And remind you of the context of chapter 9, 10, and 11. The chapter's context is Israel. The gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And Paul's point in part becomes because the offer of salvation is real. Salvation for the Jew. Salvation for the Gentile. The idea is that individuals are responsible For accepting or rejecting Christ in verses 8 through 10. The gospel message makes people accountable to God. For everyone who believes and embraces the message will be saved in verses 11 through 15. People who embrace Christ are obligated and encouraged to bring the good news to others. Salvation is impossible. Apart from the gospel, apart from grace, apart from Christ. And so, the gospel is universal because it applies to Israel and the nations in verses 16 and 17. Now remember also the word that permeates the chapter. It's the word righteousness. Remember, righteousness is a word that means to be made acceptable or right. In this particular instance, it means to be made acceptable or right in the sight of God. 
If the source of God's righteousness is Christ, verse 4, and available through the gospel, if receiving the righteousness is believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth in verses 9 and 10, if it's both impartial and universal, like it says in verses 11 through 13, then it makes sense. It makes sense that everyone should be given the opportunity to hear the gospel and believe the gospel, it says in verses 14 through 17. This week I read an interesting statistic. It was in a preaching magazine. I know, hard to believe a preacher would subscribe to a preaching magazine. But at the beginning of it, it said that in the year 2014, tens of thousands of preachers would preach 16 million sermons in 2014. That's a lot of sermons. That's a lot of opportunity to hear and believe. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. In the first epistle to Timothy, Paul told Timothy in chapter 4 verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, to preaching and teaching. John Newton, the author of the world's most beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, said, Preaching should break a hard heart. It should heal a broken heart. And I began to think about this. You would think that if 16 16 million sermons are going to be preached in 2014, that should make for hundreds of thousands Millions of shattered hearts, broken hearts, susceptible to the gospel. We should be surrounded by hearts that are broken and hearts that are healed. And then I thought, why is that not so? How can we call a sermon a sermon if it doesn't contain the gospel? How can a sermon be given... If there's a conspicuous absence of correction or encouragement or careful instruction. And then I read something even more startling, more amazing. According to Dr. Jeff Baxter and the Sacred Outfitters, there are 2.87 billion people who have never, no, never, they've never heard the gospel, not even once. There's no Christian, no scripture, no missionary. According to the Last Frontier and the Joshua Project, there are 6,072 people groups. A people group represents more than 100,000 people who share a language and a culture, who represent 1.7 billion people where there are no mission activity there's no church planting that's occurred at least in the last two years that the time is short and the need is desperate and the task seems overwhelming 
And when we pause and we think about what Paul is saying, it's supposed to awaken in our heart and break our heart and heal our heart. The tragedy becomes people who want to dispute and then divide over what the text is saying. There's going to be people who are going to close their Bible and say, I don't believe this. I don't believe what you're saying. I don't believe that you have to hear the gospel and receive Christ. You may not believe it, but Paul does. Paul has risked his life that this is true. Look what he says in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? The calling, of course, remember, takes place from verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, this is the name of Jesus. This is the name that is above all names, that at every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This is the name, this is the name that has been given whereby people must be saved. How then shall they call on him? Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. In two verses, Paul asks four questions. Question number one. How then shall shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Apart from hearing the message, no one can believe. How shall they call on him, Jesus? Salvation, listen to what Paul says, is in another. That is in Jesus, it's not in self. Salvation cannot be found in self. We cannot save ourselves. And by the way, that message is offensive. And objectionable. The moment that you turn to a person and you plead with them to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Paul has already argued that a person must believe in their heart and confess with their mouth Jesus in verses 9 and 10. And remember, salvation isn't simply embracing a set of theological rules or interesting ideas. Remember, salvation is always by blood, sacrifice, innocent, shed, applied. Salvation is always through a person, Jesus. Salvation is always by grace. Grace that manifests itself in a, in a sinner's faith and confession, Followed by a Savior's peace. So Paul will argue. What good is a gospel? What good is a gospel that no one ever hears? And number two, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Remember, Jesus spoke of this issue when he likened the world to a vast harvest field. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, he looked at the nations of the world and he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. And then question number three, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Preachers have fallen into sad And sorry disrepute. It used to be that preaching was a somewhat noble profession. But now we're somewhere above 
a politician a little above a used car salesman, but way below a firefighter or a police officer. Preaching and preachers are something that's typically viewed with suspicion. Do you know the difference between a a teacher and a preacher? A teacher imparts information. A preacher not only imparts information, but urges you to believe it and receive it and act on it in a specific way. When I'm flying across the country, I'll, I'll sit next to someone and they'll invariably ask, what is it that you do? And preacher isn't the first word that comes to my mind. Because I know if I say preacher, eyes will roll, jaws will, will drop, or hands will fold. That's actually a wonderful way to, if I need time alone and I don't need to talk to anybody, I'll just tell them the truth. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? The Lord sends. Paul has already told us That he has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in order to minister to the Gentiles. The Jewish scriptures speak of a kind of salvation for the nations. And if salvation is for all, then that involves calling and believing and hearing and preaching and sending. John Stott observes, quote, that the essence of Paul's argument is seen if we take the six verbs in their opposite order. Christ sends heralds. Heralds preach. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call. And those who call are saved. Unquote. Hodge points out that this argument is founded on a principle. That if God wills the end, then God must also will the means to reach the end. And the ends to the mean is that people have to hear about Jesus. They have to understand about Jesus. They have to believe in Jesus. And so that requires someone to talk about Jesus. So why preach? Because God has ordained Preaching. God has ordained the message of the gospel as the mechanism whereby people will open up their hearts and their minds and their souls to the reality of what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. Paul argues that a universal preaching of the gospel is absolutely necessary if the prophet's words are to be fulfilled. Why? Why does he say that? Because Paul believes with all of his heart apart from Christ and apart from the gospel And apart from grace, there is no salvation. That people are lost. And that that God will use people, preachers, preaching. This is the basis of Christian missionary movement. 
Paul is vindicating the preaching of the gospel to the nations. And you have to understand something. Paul was an observant Jew and he grew up in a Jewish home. And he grew up a Pharisee and he grew up as a rabbi. He grew up in a world, he grew up in a world where most Jews do not see Judaism as a missionary religion. Jewish people weren't aggressively trying to reach the Greeks or the Romans. Jews were desperate to stay alive in a world that constantly sought to isolate them and persecute them because they had a kind of a, of a, of a calling that separated them from the rest of the nations. But remember, it was that separation from the nations that was supposed to keep them pure from idolatry. But it also kept them estranged from the very people that they were supposed to represent the true and the living God. Jesus saw the world as a vast harvest in need of a savior. And so how in the world does Jesus send people? Paul writes That he receives a vision from Jesus and he is sent by God. In the book of Acts, the, the church was praying and they heard the Holy Spirit speak. Separate to me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have called them to. The church exists by mission. Emil Brunner said, the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. The, the image is that missions exist as if It's a picture of a world that is caught on fire by passion and it has to be consumed with the message of love and the message of forgiveness and the message of grace that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus brings with it a statement by Jesus. Remember, he rises from the dead. He says, all power and authority, both in heaven and on earth, are given to me, he says. Jesus gives the disciples an assignment. They're to reach the world and teach the nations in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. The message after he rises from the dead is authority given to me. Assignment given to you. Assurance given to the whole world. I'll be with you. Even until the end of the age, Jesus would be with them. In Luke's gospel, the disciples are promised that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit so that they'll be faithful witnesses in Luke 24, verses 48 and 49. So what are the qualifications of a person who's sent? I think minimum, it includes the idea that the person sent is a person who's Saved, is it possible, is it possible to preach the message of salvation and not even believe the message of salvation? It is possible. People do it every day. It's not the preacher's belief that saves you. It's the power of the gospel. It's the message of truth. You see, the Bible 
seems to make it clear that those people are sent are those people who are saved and those people who have a simple love for Jesus. I didn't say a perfect love. I said a simple love. I didn't even say a complete love or a perfect one. It's a simple love, a, a, a love for Jesus, which, which means that you love people. And if you love Jesus, you grow and you learn to love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves the Jewish people. Remember what it said right at the beginning of the chapter, brethren. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And so, Jesus sends people who will love the people that he loves. Remember, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You'll remember that as he was making his way towards Calvary, he slips and he falls. He's bearing the cross. He pleads with God and then cries out and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've loved you. How I've longed to reach you and to save you. No wonder Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even over the end of, to the end of the age, our love for Jesus becomes the gift from God. And then we love one another. We love what he loves. We love the Jewish people. But then Paul says that God gives him an awakening. His heart blossoms into a profound and deep love for the Gentile people. If you're a believer in the word of God, and if you're a student of the word of God, and if you are a lover of the Jewish people, if you are patient, if you are sensitive to the needs and the feelings of others, then you're a good candidate to be sent. If you're wondering, does God want me to go? You can understand that permission has already been granted. Jesus said, Go, the real challenge rests for those who interpret go to mean stay. Charles Spurgeon reminded his congregation, quote, millions have heard of Jesus. We ought not to ask, can I prove that I ought not to go? Millions have never heard of Jesus. Can I prove that I ought not to go? But can I prove that I ought not to stay? Unquote. John R. Mott wrote, quote, the awareness of a need and the capacity to meet the need. This is what constitutes a call, unquote. Paul concludes with a quote. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. In chapter 52, verse 7, we rarely think of the person who brought us the gospel 
as the person with the beautiful feet. Because it's not their feet that's the focus of the passage. It's the gospel that's beautiful. Do you know why the gospel is beautiful? Because it reveals the love of God for people. Because it reveals the truth about Jesus. Because it reveals the reality that God has manifested that love and made the love known by the power of Jesus Christ. The gospel is beautiful because it reveals God, it reveals Jesus, it reveals his love, it manifests the truth, the truth about forgiveness and the truth about reconciliation. Someone said to someone, go. And someone said, send me. And someone shared Christ with you. Someone came to you. Someone spoke with you. Someone shared with you. It might have been your parents. It might have been your Sunday school teacher. It might have been your vacation Bible school worker. You might have heard someone on radio or on television or now on the internet. And think about that for just a moment. Every single human being who has access to the net has access to the entire Bible and to the entire gospel. People usually come to Christ either by preaching or personal evangelism. Who was it that told you about Jesus? You know, maybe now would be a good time to pray for that person. Maybe right at this very moment, it would be a good idea to, to, for you to pause and think about that person who lovingly and graciously, graciously and persistently and patiently, God used them to bring you to Christ. Has the Lord called you to preach the glad tidings of peace? And remember why it's called the glad tidings of peace. Because it means peace with God. It means that the war is over. That reconciliation has been made. You might be thinking, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if God has called me to a faraway place. And that's a good question to ask. But before you ask and answer that question, I would wonder if you would be willing to ask a different question. Are you willing to ask the question, has God called me to a place nearby? Because you see, the most effective missionaries realize that outreach and evangelism begins with a passion in their heart and a commitment at home and the reality of living in the world in which we live. There are thousands, there are thousands and thousands of foreign students right here, right now in the front range of Denver. There are 50,000 Romanian-speaking individuals. There's 100,000 Russian-speaking people. There are hundreds of thousands of people who speak Mandarin and Cantonese. We have students from Asia, Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe. They've grown up in homes and in cultures where group and community are vital and essential. Did it ever occur to you to connect with some of those international students by offering your home or offering your church family as their family away from family? When Jesus said go, he wasn't simply talking to pastors or teachers or missionaries. We can go. And we don't have far to go. We can go right next door. There are some 30 plus million 
people living in the United States who were born outside of the United States. Before my father died, he was one of those. And my grandparents, they were one of those. We have an unreached mission field in our own backyard. The United States Department of Commerce estimates that 56 million visitors will come to the United States of America. Tourists will spend $100 billion. There's 500,000 foreign students in colleges and universities. In Chicago, there are more Muslims than there are Methodists. In Chicago, there are more Buddhists than there are Episcopalians. Our population of Muslims and Hindus continues to grow and expand while mainline denominations continue to shrink and decrease. There are 1,200 mosques in America. And there's at least three that are within driving distance of wherever you happen to live. By the way, what percentage of those do you suppose were people who grew up in a Christian home who embraced historical biblical Christianity and then abandoned Christ and Christianity? Paul knows what's at stake. Look what he says in verse 16. Obedience to the gospel must be embraced. Why? Look what it says in verse 16. But, this is the adversative, They have not all all obeyed the gospel. Not everyone who hears embraces the gospel. Not everyone who sees and hears believes the gospel. And look what he does. He quotes Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our report? Paul knows that opportunity compels necessity, but what happens when an opportunity is neglected or or ignored? Opportunity ignored invites tragedy. And by the way, look what Paul is saying. Preaching the gospel isn't what's tragic. It's ignoring the gospel. It's rejecting the gospel. That's what's tragic. What happens when people reject the good news of peace? What happens when people refuse to obey the gospel? This is the preacher's dilemma. This is my dilemma. Few people know as well as I do that preaching the gospel doesn't always mean believing the gospel. Sharing The good news doesn't mean that people will necessarily embrace the the good news. Israel heard the gospel, but they didn't obey the gospel. Now, I want you to think about this quote from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Paul quotes, Lord, who's believed our report? Isaiah had preached a powerful message that was resisted. And ignored. If we actually just simply ask the question. Lord who has believed our report. And we look for the short answer. The short answer is not many. The context of Isaiah's quote. 
chapter 52 and chapter 53. The context is Isaiah's message about a servant who would come, a Messiah who would come. Isaiah speaks of the servant's mission and the servant's obedience to the mission. The chosen servant's ministry is described. His crucifixion is described in Isaiah 52, 14. His resurrection is hinted at in Isaiah 52, verse 13. His redemption is spoken of in verse 15 of chapter 52. Then Isaiah realizes as he speaks about a servant who comes, who is going to die, who is going to come back to life, who is going to redeem the people. He realizes that his prophecies about a suffering servant and a coming Messiah are too hard to believe. Who could even believe such a thing? And so in Isaiah 53 verse 1 when it says, Who has believed our report? Do you know what the passage says right after that? If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah 53. Look what it says. In chapter 1 it says, Who's believed our report? Or chapter 53, verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we didn't esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Three hundred plus separate prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. And you know what is unbelievable? That in spite of so much prophetic information being imparted, they did not, they did not, they did not believe and embrace the truth about Israel's Messiah. You know, as crazy as it is to talk about Jesus As the Messiah, if you really want to see eyes turn, if you want to see heads nod, if you want to see people sigh, just tell them that Jesus is coming back. Just tell them that even though for every one prophecy about Jesus' first coming, there's three more prophecies about his second coming. Isaiah described his background and his beauty in Isaiah 53 verses 1 and 2. He he described those who were responsible for his death in verse 4. He dies for the sins of those who hate him. That includes you and me. Isaiah's message describes someone who is belittled in life and brutalized in death in verses 5 and 6 and 8 and 9. Isaiah describes someone who, like a sheep, is led to the slaughter. Isaiah describes someone whose death brings life, who is honored for his greatness. And then Paul says, Not everyone believes. 
Not everyone listens. The gospel can be heard, but it can also be rejected, neglected, scorned, disregarded. Why are there some who are without faith? Paul will later argue that there's no reasonable excuse for them for this neglection or this neglect and rejection in verses 18 through 21. We'll get to that. The fact that some will reject the gospel isn't sufficient for not preaching the gospel. And this becomes part of the point. This becomes the part of the point for each and every person who says, but what if I tell them about Jesus and they don't care? What if I tell them about Jesus? And some reject the gospel. Paul says that's not a sufficient reason to abandon preaching or missions or the gospel because it's up to us to proclaim the gospel. By the way, it's never, ever, ever your responsibility to accept the gospel for them. You can't. That's not how it works. If that's how it worked, then everybody I ever met would be saved. But that's not how it works. People get to choose or choose otherwise. They can believe or they can reject. And this is why Paul draws the conclusion that you've just read in verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Every single word in that sentence is important. I could talk for hours about the word faith and hearing and the word of God. But I want to draw your attention to the two simplest, most humble words that are in that text. Look at the first word, by. The second word, by. By hearing and by the word. The function of language is to describe certain things that language does. In this particular instance, by is called a preposition. By, the first by, is the Greek preposition ek, which means out of. And the second translation of, of the preposition by is the Greek word dia. And the reason why this is important is because the preposition gives us the clue of what point that Paul is making. Hearing by the word of God, thea, is also translated in most ancient manuscripts, Christau. In the oldest Greek manuscripts, it reads this way. Williams gives it this translation. So then faith comes from Hearing what is told and hearing through the message about Christ. If faith comes by hearing what is told, then the question that you should ask the text is this. What are you saying? What do you have to say? Faith comes by hearing what is Told, Paul is talking about the message of Christ. 
He's talking about the message that you've grown up with. The message of Jesus coming from heaven. The message of Jesus being born of a virgin. The message of Jesus living the perfect life. Opening blind eyes, deaf ears. This is the message of Jesus living and dying and coming back to life. Paul calls it the message. And the more that we know about the God of the Bible, the more we know about his word, the more faith that we possess, faith comes in the practical discipline of hearing and knowing about the Bible. Look what it says. It doesn't say that faith comes by doing. Faith comes by hearing. And this is really interesting to me. Faith comes in the practical discipline of hearing the Bible, reading the Bible, knowing the Bible, believing the Bible. J.C. Ryle famously said, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And that is so true. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. But if every whole Bible was given to every Christian and read and made them whole, then now all of a sudden the God-sized task of reaching the world becomes possible because you love what he loves and you care about what he cares about. Understand what Paul is saying. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter confirms what Paul is saying. In 1 Peter 3.15, Paul writes, But in your hearts, set aside Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, unquote. Whatever else this means, whatever else this means, it must mean that you must know the Lord before you can share the Lord. How else is it possible to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within you if there is no hope within you? But the Christian is always prepared. And that has to mean, it has to mean look for opportunities. Look for appointments that the Holy Spirit brings your way. Give an answer. To everyone who asks. By the way, the context in 1 Peter chapter 3 is Peter's exhortation to godly conduct when things have gone wrong, when things are difficult, when you are in an abusive relationship. Peter has been speaking about respect and role models and the difficulty that comes from living out your life in Christ before other people. We're to live in harmony. We're worshiping the Lord. We're ready to explain our godly conduct in potentially abusive relationships. It was John Piper who said, the reason why the world has not been reached, it's because worship has been neglected. What did he, what did he mean? What could he possibly mean? Piper meant, we worship the Lord. And we invite the whole world to worship with us. The kind of God who loves people and forgives people and reconciles people. Give an answer. Give a reason. Be prepared to share your testimony. You should be able to ask and answer this one question. If anyone ever asks you, why did you become a Christian? Why did you become a Christian? 
Do you have an answer? Is there a short, sweet way that you can give an answer for the hope that's within you? Can you tell them about the lost and hurt and difficult situation that was in your life? Can you talk about the loneliness and the dread? Can you talk about the fear and the hopelessness? Can you talk about what it was to live under the weight and the burden of your impossible sin? Can you talk about the reality of what it meant when you experienced forgiveness and wholeness and wellness? Does Paul suppose that the simple act of hearing is sufficient to generate faith? I'm going to suggest to you, he's already said that you have to hear in such a way that you believe that the message is true. That the message reflects the human condition. That it provides a solution that a real Jesus dies on a real cross and rises from a real grave. I think that when Paul says, now faith comes by hearing, does he mean with the physical ear or does he mean with the internal ear? Because if you're deaf, can you still hear the gospel? Yes. You can hear the truth. How do we get faith? We hear the truth about Jesus. And so when he says, now faith, comes by hearing, he's talking about saving faith. He's talking about the kind of faith that results in real redemption. Now remember in this chapter, Paul has laid out the marvelous mercy of God to everyone in verse 12. No distinction, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, cultured or uncultured, ignorant or enlightened. The same Lord in heaven is ready to pour out his grace on everyone who calls on Jesus. Paul lays out the exquisite terms of acceptance in verse 13. The purpose of salvation, we call on the Lord. The prayer of faith, be merciful to me a sinner. The Lord is willing to save anyone who truly repents of their sin and turns to Christ. And then Paul exhorts the believer to embark on the universal preaching of the gospel in verse 14. Paul then exhorts everyone who professes Christ to be prepared to give the message and that God would use poor, miserable, broken, fallen, inconsistent people like you me to just simply open your mouth and tell someone the truth about Jesus. And remember what else he said. We speak, verse 15, and that the rejection of the gospel by some is insufficient reason to quit. You know, I told my neighbor about Jesus and he didn't get saved. I told people at school about Jesus and they didn't get saved. I told people on the block about Jesus and they didn't get saved. And Paul is saying, not everyone who hears will believe. But you need to be able to tell them the truth. That the simple secret of faith is that faith comes from a message that's heard and believed and received. And remember the context. Paul's passion, 
his heartbeat for the Jews. Remember his calling. He describes himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. He loves the Jewish people. He loves the Gentile people. And that passion translates to employing his massive intellect to the task of persuading all men everywhere to believe. And so that's where Send and sent begins in the case where global missions continues. What is your passion? Who do you care about? Do you care about your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends? Who do you care about? Remember Jesus' words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, knowing the truth, a willingness to tell the truth, passionate about the truth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost or the ends of the earth. Remember, 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 if you have a reputation for honesty and a willingness to tell the truth and a passion to impart the truth, then you become the candidate. Remember, God is a God who loves the people of Asia. He loves the people of China. He loves the people of Africa. He loves the people of the Americas. Because the Lord Jesus wants to build a community of believers from every tribe, from every tongue or language, from every nation. And remember what that means. Jesus is willing to leave heaven and enter the world of fallen human beings. And Paul is a Jew. He is born a Jew. He is raised a Jew. He is educated a Jew. But he's willing to enter the world of the Gentile. He's willing to learn their language. He's willing to learn their customs. He's willing to learn their culture. He's willing to be persecuted. He is willing to be Not just uncomfortable, but imprisoned. What is your passion? Who do you feel comfortable with? And who do you feel uncomfortable with? Whose world are you willing to enter to really love them? Again. Your fascination with Africa, your fascination with Asia, your fascination with Thailand, your fascination with Central or South America, your fascination with language, your fascination with customs and culture, it may be God's way of reaching out to you, to speak to you, that God may be calling you to an exciting cross-cultural ministry and it might begin right here you don't have to leave you can begin right here with international students you can begin right here you can pray you can ask for divine appointments remember Paul in Colossians 4 5 Paul writes be wise in the way you act towards the outsider make the most of every opportunity unquote Every opportunity, the opportunity that you will receive when you walk out these doors, when you go to that restaurant. It might be a Chinese restaurant or a Thai place. There's Ethiopian restaurants. What is it about these people and and those circumstances that you go, I'm fascinated by you. Pray the Holy Spirit will guide you. 
Opportunity could come at any time, like that 70s song. On a bus, in a bar, in a grocery store. It could happen anywhere. It could happen at any time. Don't assume that that just because that person's a Muslim or just because that person's a Mormon or just because that person's a Hindu or a Buddhist or a skeptic or an atheist that there isn't something that they're fascinated by you, your smile, your peace, your contentment, how you're constantly looking up, how you're wondering if maybe this is the time that Jesus might come back. There's so much you can do. By the way, remember, our job is to witness. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince and convict. It's not your job to make them believe. It's the Holy Spirit's job and their responsibility. Would you like to know more about missions and unreached people? Join our missions fellowship. There are lots of great groups that you can that you can join, that you can find out about. The Joshua Project, Operation World, 1040 Window, my friend KP Yohanan and Gospel for Asia. You can pray for unreached people groups and countries. You might want to participate in an in-depth Bible study that supports and explores what this question means about reaching out. You can develop a missions worldview. You can read a missions biography. You can go. Or you can help someone who is sent You can pray and prepare to either go or to help someone go. You can look for short-term opportunities. You can get the unreached people mobile app. And I have the information up here. There's a wonderful app that they'll send it directly to your iPhone or to your tablet. And it'll talk about unreached people. You can put up an unreached people's map in your home. You can subscribe to a missions e-zine like Unreached People of the Day or Mission Catalyst. You can, you can go to my favorite site, Middle East Mission News, www.joelrosenberg.com. Go there, www.joelrosenberg.com. Begin to think about the Middle East and all that God is doing there. Pray for him. Pray for the work. Pray and prepare. Pray for Israel. Pray for the Middle East. Pray for Asia. Pray for Africa. Pray for the Americas. And you know what I guarantee you? This is what I guarantee you. If you'll do that, there'll be at least one person that you will begin to pray for. And that you'll become passionate about. And you'll pray to the Lord. And you'll ask the Holy Spirit to give you an opportunity to share Christ with them. You'll beg for them. You'll plead for their life. You'll plead for their soul. You'll plead that God will somehow reach them. So they can experience forgiveness. And hope. And reconciliation. By the way. You will never find your call until you find your your passion. Find your passion and you'll find your call. Why does it shock you and surprise you? 
that God will place on your heart a deep and abiding love so that you'll care about the things that he cares about. And you'll want what he wants. And you'll pray for what he longs for. Now all of a sudden we understand what Paul says in chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And it will take whole Christians to reach the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for grace and for mercy. Lord, I know that there are some who stagger and stutter. They read what Paul writes. And they wonder if it's really true. That apart from grace, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel... There is a dark and desperate world. There's an empty and lonely world. There are people who need to hear and be given the opportunity to respond. Lord, we pray that you would help us understand the need. Lord, we pray that you would motivate us to get involved with finishing the task. Lord, we pray that you would Awaken within us the ability to investigate and maybe even one, maybe even one to get radical and entrust your future, your whole future into the future that God has ordained for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.